we're all here, or at least you know me as a as a cancer patient because of research, and it's it's something that we still have to continue to invest, and we have to participate, and we have to do better, and we have to really um, be conscious of who's gonna help and how it's gonna help. Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick, and this is Salute Talks. Medical research studies help determine the direction of how doctors treat patients, administer medicine, diagnose sickness, and countless other aspects of treatment. Statistically, Latinos and people of color are vastly underrepresented in these kinds of exploratory efforts. This matters as the knowledge gained and disseminated in these studies could influence whether or not a patient receives adequate care. Dr. Barbara Segueda Vasquez, the Dean of the School of Health Professionals at the University of Puerto Rico and one of the principal investigators of the Hispanic Clinical and Translational Research Education and Care Development Program, funded by the National Institute of Health, joins Salute Talks to discuss this issue and her personal experience with it. Why don't you go ahead and start off and give us a little bit of your background, where you you know, where you grew up, how you got to where you are today, and, you know, what led you to where you are. Perfect. Well, um, I'm one of 11 siblings. Um, I was born in Puerto Rico. I was actually born in Chicago. My parents uh, then uh, moved back to Puerto Rico, and they got divorced, and I stayed in Puerto Rico, and my father got back to Chicago. So I was um, mostly raised in Puerto Rico all my life. Um, I studied medical technology, and I started working at the University of Puerto Rico when I was back way and when I was 25, uh, 33 years ago, so do the math. And, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a challenge uh, uh, em, uh, environment. Well, we were, the, my parents were divorced. We had my mom, uh, of the 11, we were seven of father and mother, so we all had to struggle a little, but she was the best mom ever, and really, for her, the most important thing was education. So all of us had different uh, education. My, I love science and teaching, so I was able to combine those uh, two and started teaching at the University of Puerto Rico. And I have my uh, science background, so I started working in the med tech program and, and then a master program that we have and in 2000. 14, I was named Dean of the School of Health Professions. That school has uh, 17 academic programs, so almost all the health professions taught in Puerto Rico are under our watch in our school, and we are actually accredited by the uh, Board of Accreditation from the United States, so we have very high standards, and I love my school. But besides that, uh, life took me to another journey when in 2003 I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was 42 with two kids, 10 and 14. So uh, it was stage 2B, so I had to go to uh, surgery. I had a lumpectomy, and they removed the tumor, and they left the breast. So I had to have uh, six months of chemotherapy, then seven weeks of radiation therapy, then uh, almost six years of hormonal therapy because the tumor was ER positive, that it relates to estrogen hormones. So they blocked the estrogen in order to keep you... So it, I, that took me into, you know, it wasn't something that it wasn't my plan. Uh, nobody plans to have cancer, and let alone if I didn't have to have a heavy family history and, and breast, I was the first one. So it changed your life, especially when you're a mother, you just want to, um, you think about your kids. 
So uh, those two boys are now two mechanical engineers working in Orlando in their very productive life. So I owe that uh, to God and to science because I know I'm here because of research. So after I finished all my treatments and being an educator, I knew I had to give more and do more because I was so blessed. So I started a volunteering at Tucson Gicomen in Puerto Rico. They have an affiliate. So I was a volunteer there for 10 years. And in the interim, I learned about being a research advocate. So those are uh, advocates, but really work in the area of research and learn more. And um, we work with researchers to really uh, uh, question why is it important or how is it important for a patient. So we are that collective patient voice. So following that track made me um, get more interested, especially in the Hispanic community. Even though I live in Puerto Rico, I travel a lot, I come to the States to all these meetings, and I, there is really uh, disproportion in, in access and opportunities and really understanding uh, our community and other mi uh, minorities for that, re you know, for that matter. So I think it's something that uh, we all have to put in a little, so that's kind of my passion. So after I was, you know, I'm able to combine my life experience as a patient and actually the second act of the cancer was in 2017. I got a recurrence in the same breast. So in that time, I had to have a mastectomy. And thank God I didn't have to have chemo for this second time. So I'm blessed for that. So I took care of that. And three weeks later, I was back working and everything. So it just reinforced, you know, with everything we know and everything is happening and, and the opportunities that you have to be alive, then you just have to give back. So I'm blessed enough to combine everything that I am passionate about, education, Hispanic, Puerto Rican, and breast cancer. So I, I am able to combine all of that. So that's why I'm here today. Yeah, that's wonderful. Something that I thought was interesting is that you consider yourself to be a research advocate, um, especially for the Latino community. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, does the fact that you are that you are a Latino who went through a serious health concern, drive that advocacy that you're working in? Um, yes, you know, for paramount? sure. Yeah. And, and most of it, because I, I consider myself fortunate mm -hmm. and blessed in that sense. First, I'm in Puerto Rico, so we all speak Spanish. Right. I, was, I had access for uh, people who speak my language, even though I speak in English, but you know, put it into context, I was in a great place. I work at, at the university at that time. I, uh, Insurance cover everything, so I didn't have any direct financial burden for it. I come from seven siblings, six siblings, as I told you, so I had family support. I had my husband. I had friends. So that is not the norm out mm -hmm. here. So that's where I'm coming from. I, I have all this, but I know people don't even have a quarter of what I had. So... Um, I have a mission, especially in, you know, we have 4 million Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico, but we have more than 4 million Puerto Ricans in the United States. So I'm talking about my people and the rest of the Hispanic and the biggest minority going on uh, right now. So um, we have, if, if we don't do that. Okay. Could you say, and the biggest minority? Okay, and the biggest minority. Uh, so we all have to do something about this. And um, it's easy to say, well, it's somebody else's uh, problem because, you know, I live in Puerto Rico, we're all Puerto Rican, we speak Spanish, so deal with it. But, you know, going through the disease um, 
learning the language, being a scientist, having the um, the college degree, like they were discussing this morning, having uh, uh, connections. You know, I just had to have a call, have a friend, somebody knows somebody, working at an academic institution. They were taking care of me. But what happened to the general population, you know? And then when you have somebody here in the United States that English is their second language, and they are confronted with a disease like this one, and they don't know who to ask or what to ask, and they could have an interpreter, but this morning they were discussing about having an interpreter and how uncomfortable it could be, and maybe you're not sure if they're delivering what you want them to deliver. You don't know if they're, you're receiving back where you're supposed to. So it's sad. It's really sad because I can tell you, you know, the, the ranges of emotions you go through when you get diagnosed with all these benefits that I had, I can only wonder what people go through thinking, you know, now if I lose my job, what's going to happen? I had six days. I had vacation days. I have family members. So th that didn't bother me. But you have somebody on specific wages, nine to five, no benefit, no. And they get to, they're worried about who's going to take care of my family. I'm going to deal with it. So it is a big issue. It's a big issue. So that's why I'm involved. So one aspect of the work that you're doing in advocacy is specifically focused in discussing, advocating, and um, looking into the overall lack of minority participation and representation in medical research. Could you give um, a little bit of background for listeners who might not have an idea of what that means, um, kind of what that you know, uh, disparity looks like and how that impacts the Latino community? So if, if we talk, like, for example, for the general public, you, you don't realize as a consumer all the things that go through before that medication is in the market and is available for you. And the main thing that go through it are clinical trials. So in order to say this drug really worked for this condition, it's not a matter that I have this idea, let's throw it out and let's see how people live. And no, we have to, it goes face by face, little by little. And those are called clinical trials. And um, to get to the conclusion of, yeah, well, this is available, FDA approved it, we're going now into the market. It has many years, sometimes 20, 30 years before it goes into the market. It has gone shorter, but it does. But part of that is testing it in people, having people participate. So sometimes when the researchers design their study, because this is an idea somebody had, it works, so now they have to design their study, make it happen. And so when they design, they sometimes inclusion criteria, that means who can participate in those research, because they have to have a schema, you know, like very strict um, elements, like when you bake a cake. So it has to be half a cup, a teaspoon. So that has to be in place before you start your baking or your uh, procedure, your, your project. The thing is that if, for example, they said, okay, let's control so people cannot have diabetes. Hispanics have, are very high in diabetic. In Puerto Rico, 14% of the population is diabetic. So that would exclude a huge amount of people. But then when the drug is available, they're gonna, those with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other things are the ones who are going to be taking the medication. So why not include them since the beginning and you know how it reacts to one? Second, 
Um, it's about justice. It's about um, sometimes these uh, clinical trials are the last hope for people's, for example, metastatic. When you're in the stage four of the disease, you have tried all the medications that are available by FDA that are approved, then there's these new medications on the mar that are not on the market yet are on clinical trials, and sometimes that's your last hope. But then, if you don't include them, then there's no justice for not even, I'm talking about Hispanic, but it happens to African Americans and other minorities. So it's, it's about justice, it's giving them the opportunity. And sometimes they come, and you can read this and you listen to it, I listen to it in every meeting that I go, that is that Hispanics don't want to participate, or African Americans are still on Tuskegee, uh, the, what happened with, with the, the patients, and people, I have mistrust. Well, maybe, but that's not the truth, especially in Latinos. People who had recruited Latinos, they are very committed. They, they, the retention is high, and they want to, because Latinos, we tend to, we want to help other people. So it's altruistic. And, they were, and, and part of being uh, participating in, in research is altruistic because it's, it's guessing. It's not guessing, you know, it's trying something, but it's no guarantee that it's going to work, you know? So people do that in an altruistic way. And Hispanics are very altruistic, so give them the opportunity. And you read, I read papers all the time when I'm trying to talk about this topic, and I say, well, they don't want because Hispanics don't want to. That's not true. They're not invited. Sometimes, uh, right now, before I came here, there was a session, Karini Nunez from FDA, and said, FDA, I'm sorry, and she says, we're still working on the assumptions. So people assume that you won't want to participate so that you don't invite you. So and and it's it's lack it's lack of information. So we have to do a better job and really um, since from the design of the study to the implementation to the general community to really um, informing the community what clinical trials are you know what why are why are they are important why you're not going to be a guinea pig why all the strict uh, regulam uh, regulamentation rules and everything that are available before you are able to do that we'll be right back Hi, this is Rosalie Aguilar, Project Coordinator of Salud America. As an organization, our mission is to help create a culture of health equity for Latinos. We work toward this goal through countless hours of research, writing, editing, and producing. If you believe in what we're doing and want to support that work, please consider donating to our cause at salud.to backslash donate. Thank you. Hi, this is Rebecca Jones, Assistant Director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research. Our organization serves as a research powerhouse to fuel Salute America's content. Here at the IHPR, we investigate the current state of health inequities in America and how that impacts the Latino community. Our research investigates cancer, chronic disease, and other health disparities among Latinos in South Texas and beyond. To learn more about the IHPR and our work, visit salute.to backslash IHPR. Thanks.
So when you have to go through a clinical trial, you already have that information. But now you have this person who lives in this little town, and they finally are going to invite him to participate in a clinical trial, and maybe they have never heard about that word or just related to a guinea pig. Mm -hmm. So you cannot try to, you know, somebody is dealing with the disease, trying to uh, cope with it, and then they tell you you're going to participate in a clinical trial that you don't even know what the disease is, and now there's a clinical trial. So, you know, as advocate, that is something that we have to do, you know, really reach out to communities, tell them what is happening. And when I mention advocates, you know, in this part of research advocate that we were talking a while ago, um, I can count maybe with my two hands, and I have more than enough fingers, how many Hispanic Latinas advocates are out there. Because I think sometimes they underestimate, well, nobody's going to listen to me because it's the history. Well, uh, uh, and I'm, well, I don't have nothing to say. Yes, you do. You know, and I know there's hundreds or thousands of people like me that could be doing the work here. And we need that liaison because when you're sitting at the table, they see you. If you're not sitting at the table, it's not on purpose. You know, it's, it's not neglect. It's, they don't get it. You know, like and if you were in the conference this morning, you don't get it, or maybe we get it. So in order to get it, you have to sit there and say, hmm, look, I'm here, or yeah, why don't you try this? Or, And, you know, I sometimes the only one in the chorus, uh, you know, singing or, or pushing the envelope. But I think, you know, I can make a change, even if it's a little, even if it's maybe poking somebody's brain to, well, maybe I can do this better. Maybe um, somebody's sitting down at the table with their Hispanic group, anything. Anything that it could be accomplished, I'll take the opportunity to do it. Right. It's about bringing people to the table. Yes. Yeah. A question that I would have is say that I'm someone who's going to be listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, oh, all this information is well and good, but why does it really matter? Um if whether or not we have representation in these clinical trials. Can you maybe bring it down to a very real-world example of what happens when representation is not included in these trials? Like, how does that affect maybe someone going to the doctor, and how can that, like, adversely affect their overall health outcomes? Okay, great question. And I'll give you my own example. On my second diagnosis, um, in order to determine if I was going to have to, if I would need chemo or not, they did a test called MamaPrint, and it's a genetic testing to the tumor. And it, it does a general testing, and it tells you, well, you have whatever, it's like a, a cutoff, and depending on where you are at the cutoff, you're a low risk, middle risk. Uh, this one has only low risk or high risk of recurrence, and it will suggest for you to have chemo. So that was one of the testing that they did after my second diagnosis, and it came out low risk. And you're wow, yeah, yeah, I don't need it. But when you look at the testing, it was done only in European descent population. So I rely on that, but I don't really know if it's going to be the same for me as a Hispanic and an admixture, because Hispanics and African-American, we all add admixtures, so Hispanics specifically, we different, are African-American. Yeah, 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 exactly. Different kind of, there have been so many mixed, mixed you know, races that we're not only one. So we have a lot of influence of, of India, uh, in, of uh, African-American and all those things, so we don't know. So when you go back and this, and it was 
genes that the tumor has, but everything is interrelated because what the, the way the tumor expresses is depend on your own biology and genetics. So um, if I would have numbers of look at that and said, oh yeah, um, uh, 50% or 80% or only 30% like the general uh, demographic of, of the United States uh, of minorities participated, then you say, well, maybe, you know, it's okay, but 100% European descent population. So the important thing is these drugs or uh, clinical trials are going to be um, open for the general population. So if we don't participate, we don't know how it's going to be uh, when we start participating. So if you have them, as, and it, it's never going to be like 100%, but if you have that group and it start behaving differently, then you can have just a study on that population and said, okay, yeah, well, this medication works very well in white people, but it does not work in Hispanic, or it works in, in Hispanic, but it doesn't work in African. You know, those information, unless you have people participating, there's no way you can draw conclusions about it. And the history is that it wasn't until recently that they're really, FDA is, is obligating um, and the federal government to uh, put the numbers, the demographic of your study in the papers because in one of the study I was, uh, papers I was looking for, a presentation that I did on this topic, they have of papers, I think 2003 to 14 or something, they were um, only 50% of the study were reporting race. And from there, only I think 1% of Hispanic were participating in clinical trials, something like that. So it's, they didn't even acknowledge. And these, you know, part of the history has been in, in the 1990s, the federal government established um, the, uh, an act in order to kind of obligate that they wanted, the, the mean of it was to increase the number of um, uh, minorities and women represented. It was in 1993, 2020. And we're still, the numbers are, not, are looking almost the same, the same. And there has been different movement from the government to make this happen. But I think nothing, something else has to be done. And as um, population, when, uh, the general public, like you mentioned, what we have to do is we have to know, and if we have the opportunity to participate, it's for a better good. Like, I know even though Hispanic did not participate, I'm here because there were a lot of volunteers who participated in a clinical trial to determine, well, my breast cancer, first breast cancer was ER positive, PR positive, e, uh, HER2 negative, so she should have this and this and that. And I have been, you know, 16 years now as a survivor. And we have, I have great friends. I have a friend, her name is Sandy, and she has been metastatic since 1998. And metastatic is when the disease has gone to other organs and people, life expectancy usually is less than three years. And she has gone through many um, different type of medication, but all these years later, she's here and she's helping and she's amazing. Um, but it's because of research, you know, and, and, and having cancer is a scary skin thing and you're kind of never cured and you're always like in the back of your head what's going to happen. So when it recurred for me, it was again, but you know that it could happen sometime. But the hope, especially when I come to meeting is 
we are every day discovering new things, and that's because people participate. So we have to do, and we have to really um, push it as if we keep pushing for Hispanic to participate, they have to participate because then we, if they invite it and they don't participate, then I'm going to be wrong. But I know it's not, that's not going to be the case. One question that I have is potentially a barrier that I could see is that some folks are maybe afraid of getting involved in a, in a clinical trial. Maybe they feel that they're putting their own safety at risk by being involved in a medical study that hasn't gone through the FDA. Could you address some of the safety factors that go into these medical trials and kind of um, put some of that worry to rest? Yeah, and I'm not going to go into detail of the number of phases that a clinical trial sure. goes before it goes, but th- since phase one is really does the drug work or not, and then what does, and is it better than the other one? So in every phase of a clinical trial, it goes to um, the first phase has maybe 10 patients, then it goes to 60 patients, and then 300, and then thousands to the last phase when you really. So every time they start, this is, is was the most rigorous information that they have, and most of the things they have been happening first in the lab with um, rats or other uh, elements that they use to really see if this could be a possibility because they have um, breast cancer cell lines or they have a rat that they infected with a, that has breast cancer and they test them with this and then they start seeing if this could be developed into uh, a drug for humans and then it's tested and see if it could be and then what is the dose and because I, all these things are relevant. So as their risk, you know, clinical trials have their risk and when you participate, they're gonna tell you risk and sometimes they are scarier than what they're supposed to be, but they have to tell you, you know? Because it's like when, when already the drug is available, you can see, uh, if you read the label, you will get scared because they will say it could give you asthma or it could give you shortening of breath or you can have a heart attack or you can have, because they have to report any incident or outcome that the drug could have. But it doesn't mean that if 100 people have it, take it, it's going to happen, okay? So when you participate in a clinical trial, there's a risk. But sometimes, like, for example, when they're testing a new drug for a metastatic disease, sometimes that's your last hope. So sometimes people don't even, well, it's altruistic, and maybe they say, I, maybe it won't help me, but at least I know I'm helping others. But in that time, the decision might be easier, if you may, in terms that this is my last option. It, whether it works or not, I'm going to take the risk because it, it really helps me. But there are others that really do the risk because of a really altruistic um, information. And it's individual, and nobody can really obligate. And the good thing about clinical trials, that you can commit and say, I'm going to do it. And if you get scared or you decide the next day that you don't want to participate, you just drop out of the study. And that, they don't want that, and it's not good for the study, and it's not good. But it's, it's your life, and you're the one who's going to determine. So, you know, people have the option to really participate or not. And, and when you're going to participate in a study, is they give you something that is called an informed consent. And that informed consent gives you a summary of what the trial is about and then what they foresee could be the complications. Uh, usually these participants are monitored very closely about, you know, how they breathe, what's happening. And um, it has, uh, if something happened immediately, it could be addressed. And yes, there have been worse outcomes, very bad outcomes, and there have been mild 
outcomes, and everything is registered, you know. It, it gave me diarrhea, it gave me vomits, a uh, person lost weight, person gained weight, different things. And some things are critical, but others, as a patient, you could be able to deal with it. But if, you know, sometimes there have been medication maybe uh, to death, and very, uh, and people had died. And, and one of them was presented uh, in San Antonio, because the drug, it, it happened uh, that, uh, I think of a big trial, four people died from uh, a pulmonary uh, condition. But it seemed, what they conclude from that is that people who are gonna be put on, be put on this drug have to be monitored more closely. So it doesn't mean that everyone who takes the medication will die from uh, a, a pulmonary complication. It means that they have to be tested before taking. But if the trial had not happened, this would have not been known. And I had a friend actually who's actually um, participating in this clinical trial, and her life expectancy has gone beyond of what uh, it was four years ago, maybe when she started the trial, or 18 weeks, uh, months ago, when she started, because of that drug. And she has hope now, you know, and she has been, um, she was diagnosed uh, the first time metastatic, and uh, she has done with many drugs, and now this new drug is hope for her, especially for heavily treated patients. So it's hope, it's, it's we're all here, or at least, you know, me as a, as a cancer patient because of research. And it's, it's something that we still have to continue to invest and we have to participate and we have to do better and we have to really um, be conscious of who's gonna help and how it's gonna help. And I guess um, going back to what you said at the very beginning is um, while there is some risk involved and maybe um, some fear that people have, there is a greater fear that if uh, the Latino community doesn't you know involve themselves in these research studies, there's that unknown, there's that unknown risk of how is this going to interact Affect with me. my body? Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, and maybe when you participate, they're going to be, as I told you, watching you closely and giving you all this uh, support. When it goes into the market and it's available for everyone, but no Hispanic participated and it happened that we had a gene that is going to get mixed with the medication or it, it, it um, you, you're going to have a complication because of it. You won't know until you start getting it. So all of a sudden we have 10 Hispanic with these um, outcomes that were not foreseen before because they were not tested, you know? So maybe when if you participate, you're in a closely uh, monitored situation that they'll be able to, to really look at you closely whether, and, and it won't be the same if you go at the, it's already available at the market. Thank you to Dr. Barbara Segura Vasquez for joining us in this critical discussion. To learn more about her and her work, visit this episode's webpage at salute.to slash salute talks. Salute Talks is produced by Josh McCormick and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.